Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Um, we meet a man named Stephen who's serving tables for the widows in the church, but he also has some other spiritual gifts. And uh, let's pick up in chapter 6, verse 8, with uh, Stephen beginning a, a very short, a very, very short ministry. Um, and Stephen, full of grace, verse 8, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of the men who were from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away. And they brought him before the council and they put forward false witnesses and said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 1, chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And now Stephen, as if you've been through this part of Acts before, he launches into an amazing sermon from the Old Testament. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It appears just from memory, he goes basically through the entire history of the Hebrew people, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Joseph, and then he goes on from Joseph to Moses, and he goes to David, and he talks about Moses' brother, Aaron, and then he gets to the prophets, and, uh, and then he gets um, really honest with them about the unfaithfulness of Israel, the whole history of their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, how they ignored God's word. And then he brings the story up to date, up to where they are, uh, and he exposes their rebellion, their personal rebellion against God. And now he nears the end of this incredible biblical message that he gives, and look with me at verse 51 as he comes to the end of this message. You men, now transitioning from his Old Testament text, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had been previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, but yet did not keep it. Well, as you can imagine, this doesn't go over well. This is a bunch of righteous Jews who followed the law all their life, uh, and so um, their response is less than cordial, shall we say. Verse 54, look at this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Now, this is uh, what I call a biblical understatement. Um, most of us read by gnashing of teeth and say, wow, that sounds like a pretty dramatic phrase, but, but this is truly one of those places where a picture is worth a thousand words. I want to show you what the religious Jews looked like. This is gnashing of teeth. Watch this. 
Okay, so now picture this. This is what Stephen is surrounded by, okay? Um, and, and now we see the first person martyred for Christ. Verse 51. Excuse me. Verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently at heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when he had driven him, they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their hand, their, excuse me, laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then they went on stoning uh, Stephen as he called upon the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now try to envision this situation. Can you imagine being bludgeoned with rocks until you die? Um, have you, ever, um, have you ever closed your hand or your finger in a car door? Or, uh, I'm not asking for testimonies, uh, I'm just, uh, or have you ever, uh, you know, hit your finger with a hammer or something like that? Can you imagine your entire body being crushed and pummeled at the same time? That's what Stephen was experiencing at this very moment, and he hasn't lost consciousness yet. And look what his last statement of his conscious life is, verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Do not hold this sin against them? Are you kidding me? I, I think about this. It's one thing for believers to have compassion on the lost as a general principle, right? Aren't you? Don't you hope that lost people get helped by God and he brings them to himself and they end up living eternally, completely blessed? Yes. See, we realize that lost people are deceived and confused and they're under the power of the evil one. And so, in an abstract way, most of us don't have any problem being merciful to lost people. Most of the time, we can remember how glad we were that God was merciful to us when we were sinners. Okay, that's most of the time, and that's our theology, right? But it's one thing to have a general compassion for lost people, but it's quite another to ask God to forgive them when they're in the process of executing us. Stephen's prayer for his murderers boggles the mind, doesn't it? Uh, he's yearning for the forgiveness of his torturers. That's his worry right before he passes out and dies. At his very moment of ultimate suffering, this seems beyond human, doesn't it? And in fact, when we read this verse, most of us are probably immediately reminded of the passage in Luke that's an obvious parallel to this. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, a couple of books to the left. Chapter 23, you'll know this well. It's the crucifixion. Pick up at verse 32 with me in Luke chapter 23, verse 32. And two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, and when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is a remarkable thing, right? When Stephen was executed, he reacted exactly like Jesus did when he was. It's amazing. So, so let's turn to a passage from the first book of the Bible. Now, it seems to have nothing to do with these. The first, actually, first chapter of the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis 1.1. Now what you will find, the classical theologians tell us, and this is why we should frequently be reading back in Genesis, the basis for every aspect of biblical theology is in the book of Genesis. Everything that's really important in understanding God is founded in the book of Genesis. So what he says, what God says through the, probably Moses, through the, but through the writer, the inspired writer, especially early in Genesis, are the most important things that will then found all the rest of the word. Um, it's an astounding truth. In fact, we're going to read what I think is the most unlikely verse to be in the Bible. Let's start first a few verses before. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth that were of all kind and the cattle of their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And here is the most unlikely statement, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, by the way, is God schizophrenic? No. <laughs> He's Trinitarian. The one creator is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're talking to each other. Okay, so notice how the basis for everything important we believe you'll find in Genesis even the foundation for the Trinity, even though Moses would have had no clue about the Trinity as he wrote this. But what an amazing statement this is. This is, uh, this is um, try to let this sink in. The creator of the universe is speaking, and if you really think about what it says, this is an impossibly absurd statement. And yet, it's the main point of the entire creation. The main point of the entire creation is let us make man in our image. So here's an absurd but true key concept. Write it in. Here's your first blank. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, Pastor Andy, I forgot to, yeah. Uh, not enough of you have notes. Um, and as I tell you, uh, you need them even if you don't want them. So as they, uh, just come on walking up, guys, and there's plenty of people without them. Um, here's the absurd but true key concept. Here's your blanks. God created us to be like him. The single most amazing human attribute is that we were created to reflect the very greatness of the creator himself. And so here's your next blanks. This is the highest compliment in the cosmos. No greater compliment has ever been stated. Look at this. God says to humanity, here's your blank, I want you to be like me. So how is Genesis 126 a parallel to Acts 760? Well, when Stephen was in the midst of his agony and suffering, he acted exactly like Jesus at the crucifixion. Stephen was being like 
God. It's a perfect parallel. See, the world was seeing with laser-sharp clarity someone who was made in the image of God. He was a spectacular example of the very reason why God created humanity in the first place. He was created to be just like Jesus. And you know what Stephen was doing? He was being just like God. What an amazing parallel. So here's the astonishing fact about Stephen. It's your next sentence. It's a long one, but fortunately you only have three blanks. Look at this. The astonishing fact about Stephen, when Stephen in excruciating agony said, Lord, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. He was perfectly reflecting his creation in the image of God. See, Stephen was living right out of Genesis 1. He was actually being like God. Now, let's not miss something. Most biblical commentary, in fact, if you'd have been asked this morning, many of you, if you'd have been asked the question, who was the first martyr in the church? Many of you, without hesitation, would have said Stephen. It's what he's known for. And most biblical commentaries focus on Stephen's martyrdom as the key aspect of this passage. But look, martyrdom wasn't Stephen's highest calling. Notice this with me. You think, how can I say that? See, throughout history, there have been a lot of martyrs. And in fact, think about it. There have been a lot of martyrs even for evil causes. Martyrdom was not Stephen's highest calling. It's not even what he should really be remembered for. The reality is... Stephen's great calling wasn't to be martyred. His great calling was to be like Jesus. The great calling of Stephen. Here's the key concept. Write it in. Every believer is called to be like Jesus, even though most of us will never be called to be martyrs. You can read right by Stephen and say, oh, well, you know, that's not really relevant in the United States right now where I live. That's probably, we should pray for the persecuted church. No, don't read by Stephen's story and miss his great calling. Martyrdom ended up being something he had to do for Christ, but it wasn't his great calling. So here's the application. Write it in, here's your blanks. The greatest of all human failure is quite an over-the-top statement, but I believe it's true. The greatest of all human failure is to fall short of God's aspiration for us. Let's pick back up on the concept that the highest compliment in the cosmos is when God says to humanity, I want you to be like me. When Genesis 1 says this, it gives God's purpose for creating the human race. You ready? Let me give this as a a key concept. Here it is. Here's your blank. God's great calling on every human being is for us to share his character. God's great calling for every human being. But notice, this also creates the potential for humanity's greatest failure. It's when those who were created in the very image of God try to find fulfillment in something less than they were made to be. That's failure. In other words, When we try to find happiness outside of God's will, that's failure. Here's the great failure. While God has been trying to make us into people like himself, we've been running around making ourselves into pompous little self-proclaimed gods. 
listen to our verbiage, whether stated or not. Often our lives show this. I'm going to run my life the way I want to. God. No one's going to tell me how to live. God. I want what I want. And then, of course, the great American dream. I did it my way. Think about it. I'm great because I did it my way. Failure. This morning is nothing new, though. (laughs) This whole concept of what's going on is nothing new for humanity. Turn with me now. You're at over 10 chapters to Genesis chapter 11. Many of you will be familiar with this passage as well. Um, As soon as we start it, you'll know what it is. Uh, This kind of thing, this I want to be God and I don't want you to be God, has been around a long time. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth was used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used the brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Just so you know, that would be Middle Eastern Hebrew-ish type of expression of let's be God. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city to see the tower and the sons of men had built. And God said, Behold, they are one people and they have uh, all the same language and this is what uh, uh, they have begun to do and nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Quite a statement. Come, let us go down. Let us confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. By the way, in Hebrew, that is Balal, B-A-L-A-L, and that means confusion. I'm going to be God. Confused. Perfectly named the Tower of Babel because the Lord confused their language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, look again at verse 6. This is God speaking. Look what he says. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they are all of one language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing, listen, now nothing, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. This is uh, really astounding. God made us to be of almost unlimited potential. In fact, many of you know the verse that's often mistranslated. It's it's mistranslated like this. God has made man a little lower than fill in the blank. That's not what it says. Turn to Psalm, middle of the Bible, Psalm chapter 8, I think it is. Yep, Psalm 8. And uh, we're going to see that verse that is, by the way, the, um, you, you will hear this often, the rabbinical writers who fought for l- literally almost a thousand years against having a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The reason why they said is, the reason why they didn't want to have a Greek and they wanted to keep it only in the Hebrew, you know why? Because they had this saying, every translator's a liar. 
<laughs> and what they meant by that, that wasn't a bad statement. It was just a recognition that there's no way that, I'm, that the person who's translating this is going to come to the text and just say what the text says. They're going to put their own theology into it. So every translator's a liar. Well, guess what? Every translator's a liar, except the newest New American Standard version in our day. Um, look at this, verse 3. That's right, I use the real Bible, do you? Um, number 3, when, if you're a visitor, just completely ignore that. Verse 3, uh, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, right? The moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are, have thought of him, and the son of man that you... Take care of him. That's a question. How, probably David saying, Lord, why do you pay attention? Look at the moon and the stars. Look what you did. Um, why in the world do you pay attention to me? And here's God's answer. Yet you made him a little lower than. Did I put it in the, on the screen right? Did I put the Hebrew word? Elohim. Do you know what the text says? For God has made us a little lower than God. But the translators say, well, wait a second, wait a second. If we translate it that way, people are going to be, people are going to think we meant to be divine. Now, this is, this is a key. This is truly ironic. In our culture, think for two generations, the church has been battling secular humanism. Do you know where the highest humanism ever conceived of in the history of mankind comes out of? the Bible. How's that for ironic? Now, Reggie McNeil, don't hear what I'm not saying. God has never shared his divinity or his omnipresence or his omniscience or his omnipotence. Over and over again, the scripture says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. So these passages aren't saying we can be divine. But what they are saying is that we can share his character. In this sense, he made us to be just like himself. And when we walk like him and talk like him and live like him, we're placed in the position of almost unlimited potential. So let me give a few examples. Do you know that the pyramids in Egypt, Dana and I have had the privilege to see them. They are awesome. The pyramids in Egypt were built before 3000 BC. And researchers have found that the base of these structures, which by the way are more than two football fields long, at the base, the four corners of the base of the pyramids, they are off by no more than a quarter of an inch. 5,600 years ago, that's what humanity could do. It's astounding. Think about this, we went to the moon after we were fallen. We went to the moon with just a remnant of the greatness that God created us for. So let's take a big step back. The biblical concept gives us a, a completely different understanding of the human potential movement. They aren't so much wrong. Folks, they're just misguided. Look at this. Here's what they teach. How many times have you heard this? When I find the real me then I'll reach my ultimate potential, right? When I find the real me. And in fact, you know what's amazing? It's actually true. But here's where they've gone wrong. 
Because God made us in his image, we'll never find the real me until we fully surrender to his will and allow the real me to be like the real him. And then, when we allow God to make us like himself, our potential is nearly unlimited. God made us to be a lower, little lower than himself. It's astounding. See, throughout human history, we've turned away from being what he made us to be, and we've been building our own little towers and our own little kingdoms. And all the while, we were missing the chance to join him in building the ultimate kingdom. Think about it. His kingdom against which all other kingdoms vanish into significance, and we look at them in awe. And we say, oh, aren't we all that? Look what we did. You know what? Think about this. In Genesis chapter 11, if they had succeeded in successfully building the Tower of Babel, in the end, it would still have just been a big pile of rock. And they would have thought they were amazing. So they piled up some rocks. Now, one thing that's important, some people read, uh, uh, you know, critics will look at Genesis 7, uh, 11 and say, wow, God's pretty insecure, isn't he? There he is up there talking in heaven saying, oh my goodness, they're going to be, they're gonna, nothing's, nothing's going to be impossible for them. We better, we better do something about this. We're, you, let me tell you, when you can speak a hundred million galaxies into existence with a single word, you're not really worried about somebody threatening your power. God is not insecure. That wasn't the point. You know what he was trying to do? He was trying to get humanity to wake up and live into the great purpose that he had made them for instead of just piling up rocks. How silly we are. Look what we did. We built a pile of rocks. Aren't we amazing? So here's the ironic error of the human potential movement. Here's your blank. This is a true irony. The world believes that going our own way is the ultimate expression of human achievement. <laughs> but in fact, going our own way is actually the ultimate expression of underachievement. He wanted us to be like him, and we settle for building rock piles. It's underachievement when we proclaim ourselves God. We'll never be the kind of godlike creatures that we want to be until we finally allow him to be God and make us like him. Now, let's connect this discussion to the universal excuse that humans make. <laughs> when we break a promise or when we get caught doing something shady or when we finally fess up that we're living a lie, right? It's the universal human excuse. You've all heard it and we've all used it. Okay, here it is. The common, here, it's in your blanks. The common justification when we fall short of what we know we should be, I'm only human. I'm only human. Of course I'm being perfect. Of course I, yeah, of course I sin. I'm, I'm just human. But the very first chapter in the Bible blows this excuse out of the water. The amazing concept that God has made us in his own image means that the truth is exactly the opposite of this self-justification. Track with me here. I'm only human just doesn't fly as an excuse for breaking covenant or being caught in a lie or choosing our will over God's will because Genesis 1 gives us the complete flip-flop of the excuse. Here it is. It's in your blanks. Write it in. When humans sin, 
They're not just being human. They're actually being less than human because humans were made to be like Jesus. When we sin, we're not just being human. We have become less than human. We become more like animals than we are like humans because humans have been made to be like God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were truly human. But after they tried to be their own God, they fell from the incredible beings that they were meant to be. So when we go on our own way and we ignore God's word and we determine our path and justify low living and choose our way over his, we aren't just being human. We're actually being way less than human. What a concept, huh? That's going to take away, by the way, one of your key excuses with your spouse. Um, So this brings us uh, to a quandary. I I think there's a whole bunch of people in this church that really take God seriously. And when we've been called to completely surrender ourselves to him, we've said yes. And we've promised him that we'll be faithful, but sometimes, sometimes even just a short time later, we're back where we were before. You see, we thought we'd settled the issue. We were going to live fully for Christ. But then distraction or temptation or busyness or boredom or exhaustion or hardship led us to forget the promise that we made, and we settled right back into our old patterns, our old habits. But Stephen, look at him. He challenges us at his stoning. We hear Stephen's incredible testimony in the face of danger, and we hear him confidently proclaim the truth, and then he lays down his life just like Jesus. And so we may hear the story and say, I can't be like that. No matter how hard I try, it's just not in me to be like him. And here's the truth. We can't be like that. And that is, my friends, the very point that God wants to bring every non-believer and believer to. Because only when we get to this point of understanding our complete inability to keep our promises to God are we finally ready to hear the brutal truth about ourselves? Now, I'm primarily talking to believers now. Here's the brutal truth. Write it in. We can't be like Stephen unless we have what Stephen had. We can't be like Stephen unless we have what Stephen had. But now comes the good news. Are you ready? There was nothing special about Stephen. Well, nothing special except one thing. It's a key concept. Here's your blanks. What was special about Stephen was who he was full of. By the way, I typoed the uh, title, the top of your notes, it should say, who, not what. Who are you full of? Look at this consistent, repeated description in the text about Stephen, right? This is a dramatic contrast to many of the followers of Christ today, right? Many of us are full of ourselves. Still, a follower of Christ, forgiven of our sins, and still full of ourselves. Still wanting to be at the center. 
still saying, yeah, I know what I said, God, but I really do want this. And by the way, after that, I can just ask forgiveness. And because your grace, the more I sin, the bigger your grace gets. You know, I know none of you have ever thought that. Look at these texts, what the eternal words say about Stephen. This is what was special about Stephen. Write it in. And they chose Stephen, excuse me, not write it in, just look, Acts 6, 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And then look in chapter 7, 54 and 55, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Remember the wolf? But being full of, not fear, not hatred, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. You see, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen had died to Stephen's way. Stephen had been replaced at the core of his will by an adoration for Jesus that was so deep that not even murderers could get it out of him. Nothing could. See, we'll never be able to explain Stephen or his life without understanding this. The only thing that explains his joyful martyrdom in, is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's holiness and his power and his Christ-likeness didn't come from Stephen. And this exposes one of the greatest tra tragedies in the modern church. See, many of us are trying to be like Christ in our own power. Many of us are saying, oh, Jesus, I do want to be like you. Many of us do respond to the altar, and we really, really mean it. And then what we find is we try hard to be good, and we can't. I'm talking about believers now, right? Because Dan's still full of Dan at the center. It's not that I don't believe the creeds and haven't been forgiven. It's about who's at the center. Who am I full of? So here's the problem. When we consecrate ourselves to God and say we're going to live for him, and then we go out and try to do it on our own, we will always fail. Here is an incredibly important biblical truth. This is really important because lots of people do this first step. And they do it enough times that they say, well, I'm going to stop lying, so I'm not going to the altar anymore. Look at this, the incredibly important biblical truth. Here's your blanks. Consecration and surrender aren't enough. Think about that. Consecration and surrender aren't enough. But doesn't the word say that we're supposed to surrender our lives to his will and consecrate ourselves for his purposes? Of course it does. It says it over and over. But the word also shows that no matter how sincere we are when we surrender ourselves to God, unless we allow him to do his part, we'll never be true to our promise. And maybe as you look back over your Christian life, that's what you see. Maybe many times you've told God that you'd follow him, you'd obey him and live for him no matter what. But then, despite as trying as hard as you could, you fell back into the same sins and attitudes and habits. And so what's the answer to our quandary? I'll give it in two key concepts. I think these are your last blanks. Key concept number one, completely surrendering our will is our part. Yes, the word says, consecrate yourselves. 
Give yourself to the Lord. Surrender your will to him. That's our part. But key concept number two seems to be lost on much of the American church. It's this, look, the miracle, number two, the miracle of empowering, purifying, and sanctifying us is God's part. We can't do that. It's a miracle. Now, now listen, God's job to make our hearts filled with himself so that he actually lives his holiness in us. This empowers us to live like him in a fallen world. But this isn't a result of effort. It's actually a miracle of grace. We just say, Lord, I can't do it. I've been in this cycle. I I may have trusted myself to you 40 years ago, and I find myself in this cycle, and I'm trying as hard as I can, and I can't do it. And he says, ah, you finally get it. You can't do it. You know what? The Pharisees were better than any of us at being holy, and they were dead before God. Because it was from their own strength. Now let's apply this to Stephen. He wasn't some superhero that had special powers. Stephen had simply been filled up to the fullness of Christ. He had been changed. He'd actually been transformed. It was from the inside out. It wasn't Stephen saying, okay, if they ever try to stone me, I'm going to be like Jesus. No, he wouldn't have. He never would have forgiven his murderers under his own strength. It's because Jesus actually lived his perfection in Stephen, the only place it'll ever come from. See, some of us, you've come to church to, uh, because you know you need to be better. But you know what? If you come to church to hear that you need to be better, you don't need to come to church because you already know that. Do you realize... One of the problems with part of the American church is you show up on Sunday and they say, you be better. You have bad attitudes. Have a good attitude. Be like Jesus. And so we go work all week long trying to be like Jesus. And you know what? We can't. Um, We don't need to hear what to do once a week. You know what we need? We need to get what we don't have. That's what we need. Some of us are trying to be faithful based upon a promise that we made to God or a decision where we finally settled everything. But if we weren't actually filled with his transforming power, and if we're not being refilled over and over, then we'll always end up trying to be good in our own strength and we'll always fail. By the way, some of you think Pentecost was a single event. The reality is, read the chapter, fourth chapter of Acts again, where everybody who was at Pentecost was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what chapter 4 says about all those people? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're looking back at your spirit filling 30 years ago, folks, you're dead. This has to be refreshed and renewed. The Spirit fills us all the time. That's where our purity comes from. It's not us. So have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you no longer full of yourself? And if you have, is it fresh? Is it real now, today? Now, as we close, I'd like us to look at our application again. Look look at the application. The greatest of all human failure is to fall short of God's high aspiration for us. In fact, 
Ever since the fall, we've been doing everything in our power to underachieve. We've been turning racehorses into old mares. We've been downgrading gold into dirt. We were made to be royalty, and we have settled for being slaves. We were made in the image of God. We were made to reflect his glory. We were made for greatness. And yet, many of us aspire to nothing greater than simply following our own desires and urges and scuttling God's incredible plan for us. Some of us may wonder why God has set the bar so high. Do you know why he set the bar so high? Because he made us to be champions. This is why he calls us to purity. This is why he calls us to holiness. Because when we actually allow him to make us into people who share his character, there's no limit to what he can do through us. Our problem is, I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to be like God. And it will never happen. So let me ask you some questions. Are you happy with just a bit of God in your life? What have you been settling for? Are you satisfied with him just tweaking a few of the edges, or do you really want him to have all of you? Have you lowered the bar? Have you been derailing God's plan for greatness? Or have you allowed the Holy Spirit to make you the kind of person that can join him in the great adventure? Have you allowed the very Spirit of God to make you like himself? Here's the only way this is possible. Two things need to happen. It flows from your last key concepts. Notice, two things need to happen. First, we do completely surrender our will as an intentional choice. This is a key. God won't drag us unwillingly kicking and screaming into being like him. We share his image in his freedom as well. He's completely free and flawless. He gave us that freedom. So, unless we, by our free will, do our part, he's not going to do his, but that's not enough. A second thing needs to happen. He needs to perform a miracle in us. He has to fill us with his spirit so that we're no longer full of ourselves. And then we have to continue to cooperate with the spirit in an ongoing, ever-refreshing relationship where Jesus makes us more and more like him. So are you willing to let him do a miracle in you? Are you ready to fully surrender so he can remake you in his image? Now, I want to clear something up. Uh, in many theological traditions, the infilling of the Holy Spirit has been made into a mysterious thing. Um, some settings almost bizarre. You should see the snake bites that I have seen at the University of Arizona from cults who when you get spirit-filled, it means that you don't get bit by snakes, which actually is incorrect in my experience. <clears throat> Let me simplify this. How are we filled with the Spirit of Christ? What do we do? Are you ready? We ask. See, there's no special incantations, no background music that gets everybody's epinephrine level just high enough so everybody's ready to be filled. This is very simple. There's a remarkable passage in Luke that makes it like this. Listen to the word of Christ. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. 
He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There it is, the word of Christ. Serious, I lay myself down, Lord. But Lord, I, I, can, I can try till the cow comes home to surrender and I'll never be like you. So please, fill me with your spirit. Pastor Stewart, come up. Some of us are stuck in a cycle of failure. And so we live in what seems to be a trap where we sin and repent and then we sin again and then we repent again. But Stephen's life teaches us that not only can we be forgiven of sin, we can actually have victory and be like Jesus. But we'll never have victory in our own strength, no matter how hard we try. We'll only have it when he fills us with himself. So let me ask, and this is a perfect, uh, this is a perfect setup for whether we really want to surrender. Where we started this morning, everybody would have thought, oh yeah, Stephen, he's the first martyr. And if I'd asked this question, hey, so do you want to be like Stephen? Plenty of us would have thought about that. But let me ask it this way. Do you want to have what Stephen had? Do you want it so it doesn't matter what happens? Jesus just flows from you. Do you really want to be like Jesus? Then surrender completely to his will. That's your part, but don't stop there. If you do, the Christian life is miserable. You know the most miserable life in the world isn't being a sinner. Then you just do what you want and write books about it. The most miserable life is being a Christian who's still full of yourself, knowing, hearing every Sunday, oh yeah, that's right, I'm supposed to be better. What a miserable way to live a Christian life. The way to live life to the full is to be made like God, and only he can do that. So, it's real straightforward. You just say, Lord, I really do want you to be Lord. I really do want all that you have for me. And I realize that I can't be like you. I'm too selfish. I'm too sinful. And I'm a slave to what I want. I'm a slave to me being on the throne. Lord, I'm full of myself, even though you've forgiven me. So Lord, I need you to perform a miracle. I need you to actually make me different. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me so I can really be like Jesus. Make me in your image. Stand with me. Even though Stephen was just like you and me, Acts chapter 7 shows us that because he was full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen was actually like Jesus. So this morning, without any fanfare, without any emotional manipulation, I just want to ask you a simple question. Do you really want to be like Jesus? If you do, and if you really mean it, then if you ask, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit and he'll remake you into his image. Remember, his word said, if you ask, he's a good father and he will give it. In a minute, Pastor Stewart's going to sing. 
And when he does, if you're physically able, I'd like you to kneel at your seat. And as he sings, I want us to honestly answer the question, do I really want to be like Jesus? Now, when I, it's kind of funny, whenever I ask this congregation to kneel at your seats, some of you come to the altar anyway, so the altar is also open. I can't get you to, I just can't, Pastor Kurt, sorry, this is probably, you feel this all the time. I just can't get the congregation to do what I ask them to do. Um, if you're physically able, uh, kneel where you are or at your, uh, or come to the altar, whichever, but I just want us to all take a few moments and ask, do I really want to be like Jesus? And if so, say, Jesus, fill me with your spirit.